Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Dan Rogers at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. We're in a series in the book of Acts, so if you've got your Bibles here, please open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through to verse 35. It is a lengthy passage of Scripture tonight, but it's okay. It's an interesting story. We're going to have fun. You know, change can be really difficult for us. We tend to be creatures of habit. We like routine. It's, it's safe. It's familiar. And so moving away from that is scary. So we hesitate. We're, we're often resistant to change. I was reading a really interesting article during the week as I was uh, prepping for this that um, did a study that linked longevity and familiarity with a kind of subconscious uh, thought that it must be good. It's been around for a long time. If I know it, then it's got to be good, right? I'm going to read some of it to you. It says, it's not just that people fear change, though they undoubtedly do. It's also that they genuinely believe, often on an unconscious level, that when you've been doing something a particular way for some time, it must be a good way to do things. And the longer that you've been doing it that way, the better it is. So change isn't simply about embracing the unknown. It's about giving up something old, something familiar, something proven for something new. Not just about what you're moving into. It's about what you're leaving behind. This is good. I I mean, that's why it's lasted so long. I know this. It works. I'm, I'm comfortable here. And I have to leave all of that to move into something that might be better, but, but it's a risk. What if it's not? So in that study, they tested university students and they presented them with two options. You can either stay with your current course requirements, you can stick with the status quo, or you can change to a new course. And what they discovered is that even when that new course had lower expectations and required a less, less effort, less work, right? Lower expectations, that even then, students preferred to stay with the status quo because it was safe. I know what I'm doing here. There's another really interesting one that I thought was kind of funny, actually. They tested people with chocolate. They took two groups of people, gave them the exact same chocolate, but told one group that it had been sold uh, in, in Europe somewhere like 70 years ago. That's when it first came on, right? So it's a recipe that's been passed down throughout the generations. And then they told the other group that actually it was the opposite, that the chocolate had kind of just come onto the market in the last couple of years. And the fascinating thing is that the group that believed that the chocolate was older actually rated it higher. I don't know if they're just a bunch of hipsters, but I find that fascinating. I don't even understand that. I don't want to change my course requirements. I'd rather just stick with what I know. If it's older, it has to be better, right? And all of that comes together to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's kind of ingrained into us somewhere. It's not broken, don't fix it. Why are you going to touch things? It's not just them. I mean, every time me and Anna go out for breakfast, I see this. Because every time we go out, she gets the exact same thing. Now, there could be something amazing on that menu, and she'll never know. Never even know, because she's going to get the smashed avo come hell or high water. And if they don't have smashed avo, we're not staying. We're getting up, and we're walking to another cafe that has smashed avo, because that's all, that's all she eats. I don't even understand. Change... 
it isn't easy for us, right? Transition can be really, really difficult. And I say that because we get to Acts chapter 10 and we see Peter struggling with all of the changes that have taken place from them moving from the old covenant to the new. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Of course, right? It's Jerusalem. And in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's massive. It levels the playing field. No longer is it about a certain group of people. The gospel is for the world. So much has changed. The old is gone, the new has come, and Peter is struggling with some of that. So here we go. Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we will pick it up from there. It says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's an amazing picture. We're going to get to that. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who he attended. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we pick up our story in a place called Caesarea. It's a beautiful city. It was the center of Roman rule in the province of Palestine. And as you probably noticed, it was named after Caesar Augustus. In fact, it had a temple dedicated to his worship because this city was built as a showcase of Roman culture. This is Rome. This is who conquered you, who rules over you. That was the idea anyway. And in that city, there was a man named Cornelius. We're told that he was a centurion, so he was an officer in the Roman army. But that meant that he was a powerful man. He would have been wealthy. He was a man of influence. But he was also a man of faith. He wasn't satisfied with the things of this world. Power, money, influence. wasn't satisfied with that. So searching for more, he discovered the goodness of God. Luke says that he was a devout man. A God-fearer, which is just a technical term that means that he was a Gentile that believed in Yahweh. The Jews would have called him a proselyte of the gate because he believed in Yahweh. He'd aligned himself with the Judaic covenant, right, with the law, but he wasn't actually a part of the Jewish community. If you wanted to be a full-fledged member of the Jewish community, you had to go through certain rituals. And as a man, one of the biggest ones was circumcision. Now, as horrible as that is for a baby, and and it is pretty horrible, that's horrific for a full-grown man. Like, I just, I I can't even think about what that would be like. So you can imagine that it was a little bit of a stumbling block. Like, I I believe in, in this Yahweh guy, but why are you trying to cut me? 
What are you trying to, it's just weird. What are you trying to do here? A bit of a stumbling block. That gives you an idea of who Cornelius was. He believed, he prayed, deeply interested in the things of God, but he wasn't allowed into the temple. He wasn't a full-fledged member of the Jewish community. He was on the outside looking in because he was uncircumcised. And yet God looks past all of that to see his faith. A faith that he'd evidenced in his commitment to prayer, his desire to be with God, to know God, and in his generosity to the poor, who, by the way, would have been Jews. That's who he would have been giving to, giving alms to Jewish people. So one day while Cornelius is praying in the afternoon, which was a traditional time of prayer for the Jewish people, an angel appears and it freaks him out a little bit. I mean, there he is minding his own business, praying to God and this angel rocks up. And not only that, it calls him by name. It's just not something that happens every day. So he's afraid. I think that's kind of a reasonable response. But he knows it's from God. And we know that because he calls him Lord. He says, what is it, Lord? It's a little unexpected, but hey, all right, I'm listening. What do you got to say to me? And the angel says something that I think is fascinating. He says, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And I just want you to try to picture what it is that's going on here. Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Cornelius, you need to know that God sees you, that he loves you, knows you, and cares about you. You may not be allowed into the temple, but your faith and generosity rise like an incense offering before God. He sees it. And that's an incredibly encouraging word. God sees you. Nothing you do goes on nothing. Nothing is in vain. He sees you. So the angel goes on to say, I want you to go and descend for a man named Peter. He's staying in, in Joppa with a friend of his called Simon. And the amazing thing about this, because there's not a whole lot of info in there, right? The amazing thing is that Cornelius instantly obeys. Doesn't question it. Not looking for more information like, Okay, is there, is there a reason? Why am I doing what I'm doing? No. God tells him to do something and he just obeys. There's such a childlike nature to his faith. And it's powerful. Really, really powerful. But I want you to keep his response in the back of your mind as we read on and we read Peter's response. Here's verse 9. It says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city... Peter went up on, that is uh, uh, Cornelius' servants, right? They're approaching the city. Peter went up by a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. 
And this thing happened three times. And then it was taken up at once to heaven. So Cornelius' servants are on their way to Joppa. They can see the city up on the horizon. And yet while all of that is going on, Peter decides to spend some time in prayer. And I don't want you to miss that. That prayer is an integral part of this story. It's not a coincidence that both Cornelius and Peter were praying when God shows up. It's not a coincidence. And Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. And it's so easy to over-spiritualize that. But it's a pretty simple reason why the sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. They heard it constantly. Let's be honest, they spent a fair bit of time together. And over time, as the shepherd led them and guided them and spoke to them, they grew to trust and know the voice of their shepherd. And I'm not so sure that we're good at that. I know a whole lot of people who really don't know how to hear from God. We live in such a fast-paced society, but you can't shortcut this. You just can't. You want to know the Father's voice, know the Father. Spend time with Him, get into His Word. And over time, as you spend quality time with Him, you will grow to know His voice more and more. It's not a mistake that Jesus spent large portions of time in prayer. It's not a mistake that he passed that on to the disciples. It's really important to who we are. So the Lord gives Peter a vision as he's praying. And in it, he sees this enormous sheet descend down from the heavens. And in it are all kinds of animals. Some of which would have been clean and some of which would have been unclean. And Peter, being the good Jew that he is, would have noticed that immediately. And yet here comes a voice. And it says to him, rise, kill, and eat. And that kind of throws Peter. I mean, he knows it's from God. That's why he calls him Lord with a capital L, right? Anytime you see Lord with a capital L, referring to God, right? Knows it's from God. But he's torn. Do I obey what the Lord is telling me? Or do I hold on to the law? So he kind of blurts out this dumb statement. It's an oxymoron when you think about it because he says, by no means Lord. Lord means master or king. And if that's actually true, the second part of your statement cannot be no. The only words that go with Lord are okay, yes, already on it, or Jesus, please help me. That's it. It's the only words that belong with Lord. Now, you can't call him king or master and then turn around and say, nah, I don't really want to do what you're calling me to do. It just doesn't work. And this is Peter, the hero of our faith. But it just shows us how deeply the law was ingrained into him as a Jew. That he'd rather say no to Jesus than disobey the law. Because it's all he's ever known. So integral to his identity as a Jew. And it actually gets to the heart of what God is trying to do here. See, in the old covenant, the people of God were set apart by the external. 
They weren't allowed to cut the corners of their beard. They weren't allowed to tattoo themselves or mix wool and linen in their clothing, right? There were all these different kinds of rules. They weren't allowed to eat anything that crawled along the ground or anything with cloven hooves. Dozens of laws that shaped the way that they lived their lives because they were called to be set apart. They were his people. They were supposed to look and live differently. They were called to be salt and light, to be light into the darkness of our world. Remember the promise God gave to Abraham? I will bless you and use you to be a blessing to the nations. There was a dual aspect to that. That the people of the world would look at them and see how different they are. See God's blessing on them and think there's something different about their God. This, this Yahweh, there's something different. Now the reality is that we share that calling to be salt and light. To shine into the darkness of our world. But we're no longer set apart by the external. We're set apart by the reality of the God of the universe lives in us. The gospel tears down the barriers. And the Jewish people really struggled with that. Because it took away what made them special. That's harsh, but it's true. Somewhere along the line, they lost sight of their calling. And they became obsessed with the reality that God had chosen them. Dual nature of the promise that he gave to Abraham. They kind of cut that second half off. And just made it all about them. It's not about the world. It's not about being a blessing to the world. It's not about others discovering the goodness of Yahweh. It's about us. He chose us. And God is trying to show Peter. No, not anymore. I've torn down the barriers. When I said I've other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. I meant it. And I wonder whether those words were ringing through his ears as he sees this vision. When I told you that the gospel was to go to the ends of the earth, I meant it. The old is gone, the new has come. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to complete or perfect it. See, the amazing truth is that Jesus did what we cannot. He fulfilled the requirements of the law so that we don't have to. He's trying to help Peter understand is this incredible truth of the gospel that in him, what used to be unclean is now clean. What used to be impure and unholy is now holy and righteous and pure. That's why he gets to verse 15. He says, don't call it common or impure anymore. And in the Greek, that's actually an imperative. So it's an order. Don't call them common anymore. King Jesus commands it. That's how we're supposed to read that verse. This is how Peter responds to the vision that God has given him. Verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. uh Behold the men who were sent by Cornelius 
having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, that you might come to his house, and he might hear what you have to say. So he, being Peter, invited them to be his guests. Next day he arose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That word kind of means like it's taboo. I shouldn't be here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Not 100% true, but that's okay. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour... I was praying in my father's in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. It's an evangelist dream. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who hears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter is sitting there grappling with what he's just seen. He's trying to make sense of it all, but it's hard. There's a time of transition for our faith and for the Jewish believers in particular. There's so much that they had to come to terms with. While he's sitting there thinking about it all, inwardly perplexed, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, There's three people downstairs. I sent them, so don't hesitate. Don't question it. Just go with them. Peter jumps up, hears them calling out, and yet his response is, What are you doing here? You've got you to think. you put yourself in God's shoes. Imagine how frustrating that's got to be for God. Like, Peter, I just told you. I just spelled it out for you. I said, don't hesitate. Don't worry about it. Don't question it. I sent them. Isn't that enough for you? Just go with them. And you just, you just, can't, you just can't do it. You just, it's unbelievable. It's one of the reasons I love Peter, because I feel like I can relate. It's hope for me. I'm saying that's probably something that I would do. Anyway, they explain why they're there. Holy Spirit has been directing this entire thing. And Peter takes a small step of extending hospitality. Jews weren't allowed to eat or even associate with Gentiles. So what he was doing was slightly taboo, but he knows 
that God is in this. So he invites them in, and the next day they head off for Caesarea. It would have taken them a day or two. But when they arrive, they see that Cornelius had gathered together this massive group of people. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Because that's what you do when you're about to hear life-changing news. You gather together the people you love. You're getting married, people there. Your baby's getting dedicated, people there. Gender reveal, people there. That's what we do. Nobody has these things with like a blank, empty church in front of them. It just doesn't happen. You've got amazing, life-changing news. Nobody keeps it to themselves. They go, you've got to come. You've got to hear this. I'm going to gather together all the people that I love. They need to know. Peter walks in. Cornelius falls down at his feet. He's like, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? You're trying to kill me? Don't you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Don't do that. Take take 10 steps back away from me, please. Stand up. What are you doing? Get out of here. But then he says something really interesting. This is kind of the heart of this passage. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It's taboo. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Because if he was being honest, I think Peter would say, you know what? I have looked down on people. I have allowed myself to kind of be up here looking down on everybody else. I have been prejudiced. I have discriminated. I think Peter would say that. But you know what? The Lord is working with me on that. So I'm here. And I want to help. Cornelius tells him the entire story. I was, I was praying. God met me. Told me to send for you and you're here. So I've gathered all of these people. And we just want to hear what God has to say to us. And in that moment, Peter gets it. Here's what I would call a kairos moment, a light bulb moment where God breaks in and helps him understand more fully. God's in this. He's pursuing this Gentile. He's brought me here to preach the gospel. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That the gospel is for all. That salvation is for all. That when Peter said, Paul says this right, there is no longer Jew, nor Gentile, slave, nor free, male, nor female. None of that matters anymore. We are one because of the cross. It changed everything. I want to invite the band to come back up and to lead us in worship. But here's, here's my takeaway for you. Amazing truth of this story. I look at it and I see that God's grace brings together what our sin tears apart. It has this amazing power to actually restore and make one what actually we have torn apart. And I see God is restoring his people. He's tearing down the barriers. And it reminds me of something that Nick says from time to time. That we have this real belief for wider church unity because we believe that God wants his family back. That we are his children, the product of his grace. And he wants us to be one. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'd say we're so quick to exclude, so quick to distance ourselves or to subconsciously elevate ourselves over those around us because we want to be special. We want to be significant. And if we're honest, we're just kind of broken and selfish and sinful. 
But here's the challenging truth of this story, that we should be the best at this. When we stand in bigotry and discrimination, and we allow that to infiltrate our community, that we lose the power and the authority from our proclamation because we rip out the very heart of the gospel. We deny what brought us together in the first place. And if we do that, what do we have left? You know, there's something in this story that struck me. I noticed it almost as soon as I'd read it. Kind of sitting there reading, I was thinking, why didn't the angel just give the gospel to Cornelius? He's there, he's already speaking to him. So instead of telling him to go get Peter, the angel just could have given him the gospel. In fact, we find out later in the book of Acts that Philip the evangelist is already in Caesarea. He has a house there. It's just down the road. So why go through all the rigmarole of sending someone to get Peter? I think it's because Peter needed this just as much as Cornelius did. God knows how toxic prejudice and discrimination can be. He knows how counter it is to the gospel, who we are. So right from the outset, from the top down, that he's making sure the church gets this right. That we would understand that we are one. The gospel is for all. Salvation is for all. The church is a place of healing and restoration for everyone. And so he says, oh, go, go get Peter. He needs this. You know, there's a really interesting story about Mahatma Gandhi. I heard it on a podcast by a guy named Skip Heitzig. It's a pastor named Skip, but that's okay. We all know that kind of Gandhi was this famous Indian leader. He was trained to be a lawyer, spent time in South Africa. What's interesting is that Gandhi was actually drawn to Christianity. I don't know how many of you know that. And in particular, he was drawn to the person of Jesus. And he was enamored by the Sermon of the Mount. He's actually thinking about converting to Christianity. He believed, this is amazing, he believed that Jesus and Christianity, from what he understood of reading the New Testament, he believed it was the answer to the caste system in India. Wow. One day he decides he's going to go to church. He rocks up and he tries to walk in, but he's stopped at the door by an usher who suggests that he should go and worship with his own kind. Mahatma Gandhi walked from that, away from that and this is what he read wrote sorry he said well there seems to be a caste system even within Christianity so I just think I'll remain a Hindu and he said that was the seminal moment where he rejected Jesus rejected Christianity and said you know what I'm just going to stay within the system that I was raised and try to reform it from within what an incredibly sad story we should be the best at this. And we have to be the best at this. Because it's what the gospel demands from us. What leg do we have to stand on that we would elevate ourselves over anyone else? Uh, the unbelievable truth of this place. Is this is a whole bunch of broken people. Hospital for the sick. That's what this is. Broken people who desperately need Jesus coming to him together. That we might actually support one another. That we might do life together. That we might worship together. But there's nobody in that who could possibly raise themselves. It's a place for everyone. 
It has to be. Because it lies at the very heart of the gospel. That's what this story is about. And I pray that that would not be us. I pray that each and every person would be welcome here. And it might be different today. And we're all Gentiles anyway. Maybe there's a Jew in the room. I don't know. Probably all Gentiles. Probably different. Are we foolish to think that we don't prejudice on different grounds? And it destroys the power of our proclamation. Rips out the heart of the gospel. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray in just a second. I'm going to give you a chance for God to search you. And he might reveal in you any grounds of discrimination, any kind of prejudice within you, any desire that you have to elevate yourself above anyone else, that he might reveal it to you, convict you, and that he might work it out of you. That we would be the people he's called us to be. And that this truly would be a place for all. Let's pray. Jesus, right now, I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would reveal to us the pride, the prejudice, the discrimination. if there's anybody that we try to distance ourselves from anybody that we exclude anybody we think we're better than Lord Jesus, reveal that to us. Father, I pray that you would bring us back to the heart of the gospel. That we would be a people who love the gospel so much that it shapes us. That as we speak it, that there would be power because people can see it and who we are and the way that we live. Father, I pray this church would be a place of healing and restoration for all. We need your love to do that. We need your patience, your kindness. As we simply pray, Jesus, may there be in each and every one of us in this church less of us and more of you. Let's our heart more of yours. Let's our mind more of yours. Let's of our priorities more of yours. Would you rule and reign in this place? This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329 1777. 
Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.